Are you ready to explore something different, something more? On Straight Ahead, hosts Arya Tepper and I examine sources of cultural vitality, from jazz music to the Jewish tradition. If you're searching for generous and soulful approaches to contemporary challenges, join us for Straight Ahead, the Omni-American podcast. Welcome to Straight Ahead, the Omni-American podcast. I'm Greg Thomas, joined by my co-host and partner for the Omni-American Future Project, Arye Tepper. Greg, how are you feeling? It's great to hey, see you. Hey, I'm doing great, man. I'm doing great. And it's uh, great to do a quick introduction for our our guest, who is someone who is well-known by, by many people in the leadership space, business, marketing in particular, uh, and that's Seth Godin. Uh, he's the author of, of 21 international bestsellers. Uh, he has a very popular blog that he does every single day without fail. He's been doing that for a long time. He is the uh, speaker of two of the most popular TED Talks. He has uh, launched he launched the Alt MBA program, like Alternative MBA. Um, he had a business called Akimbo that he launched and then became a B Corp that the people, the team that was working with them, he lets them run it. So one of the things I like about Seth Godin is that though he could be an entrepreneur focusing on scaling a business to, you know, the tunes of millions and millions and millions, he's more focused on creating a change, small changes and inspiring others and educating others. Um, he's the author of many books that we that we talk about as the folks will see um, in the episode. Uh, one that I don't think was mentioned that was very important for me is called This is Marketing, uh, where one of the concepts in there that I love is the minimum viable audience. You know, this whole idea about a mass market, he says a minimum viable audience, focus on those people who gravitate to you and please them, delight them, you know? So, yeah, Greg, uh, Seth Golden is someone I've heard about from you for uh an extended period of time. I know that you admire him and admire his work. To be honest, he's not working in a field that, that I find myself in or that I'm familiar with. And for me, the language, I don't, I don't understand always what he's saying, but I definitely got out of this conversation that he's a man of the people and he wants to inspire people. I enjoyed being stretched and, and getting out of my comfort zone and having, having a, an interesting conversation with him. And, uh, and I know you enjoyed it. Very I definitely much. did, and I want folks to know that you know we don't take it easy on Seth. Neither one of us, you know, we we ask uh, some tough questions or some you know deep questions. I think, and you know, he, he riffs on him. He responds. We kick it back and forth. Yeah, that's right, Greg. We did push back a little bit. We asked him some tough questions, and I, I have to be honest. When I'm listening to someone, I just want to know what they mean. When you're using words, what do those words mean? Now, you can call that philosophy, all right? But I think I'm just trying to understand what the words meant. So I enjoyed hearing from Seth what he meant by uh, significance, what he meant by leadership. But I wasn't trying to be philosophical. I was just trying to understand what the man was saying. I hear you. And uh, we're going to let folks understand what he's saying in this conversation for themselves. For themselves. Enjoy. I am so, so pleased to be able to welcome to the show, Seth Godin. Welcome, Seth. 
Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Aria. Good to talk to both of you. Great to have you. Well, we're going to start, or I'm going to start, kind of in an unusual way. Um, one of Seth Godin's favorite words is rant. Another is ruckus. So I'm going to commit to us making a ruckus in this episode. And I'm going to give a momentary rant of appreciation and tirade of gratitude. Okay. Okay. I'm a co-host of this show, so you don't have a choice. You're going to have to deal with this. (laughs) Bring it on, man. Okay. So uh, I have been a student of Seth's work for for many years. Uh, My father is kind of a lifelong entrepreneur and, and inbred in me. Um, you know, the importance of owning your own and being an entrepreneur and, and you know, small business and such. And I work for the um, broadcast journalist, Tony Brown, in the late 80s. And he would talk to me and he would say, Greg, marketing, marketing. So your work on, on marketing, Seth, has been a foundation for, for me in my business life. But frankly, you know, marketing and business, yes, the workplace, those are, you know, th- those are of your 21 books, you focused on that quite a bit. But it's more than that. And I, I want to highlight that before we begin, because for me, you, your ability to take, in many cases, complex ideas and winnow it down to a very understandable uh, uh, expression is a very important skill and a, and, a, and a great skill. But not only do you deal with business and marketing, you recently published this book, The Carbon Almanac, which I hope you get a chance to riff on. You've done, you've written uh, a manifesto on education and changing the education system. So, you know, I just want to tell you that for me, I admire and honor your work in the world to make change for good. And also the name of my business, Jazz Leadership Project, the name of the social entrepreneurial effort that Arya and I are doing together, the Omni American Future Project, were influenced by you. The word project is key in your work. And I'm hoping that you get a chance to talk about that. In fact, why don't we just start there? What, what what's the importance of projects for you, uh, and and what is that in comparison to? Because you're really keen on projects. I'm a little choked up after that intro. Thank you very much. Oh yeah, man. You know what you mean. The expression "this might not work" is alien to some people. This might not work forces us into compliance. It's busy being indoctrinated to us from a long for a long time, from an early age, don't do things that might not. And the other thing that we are pushed to do is find our thing and keep doing our thing. Don't, quote, lose your job, right? Mm -hmm. And all of those things are the opposite of the project work. Project work is we are seeking to make a change in the world. Projects have a beginning, and sometimes, often, they have an end because we achieved our goal. Either it worked or it didn't. Projects must be accompanied by the phrase, this might not work. It's still worth trying. It's still worth doing. This might not work. And it's so much safer to call it a project than it is to say this might not work. So I've done 
a lifetime of projects. And I'm so grateful for the ones that worked and even more grateful for the ones that didn't. Because the ones that didn't empowered me to try the next thing. And if you need to to throw a no-hitter every time you're on the mound, you're not going to play. And my mindset is, was it worth trying? All right. Okay. So your latest book is The Song of Significance, a new manifesto for teams. And you lay out a vision for work in the 21st century. And that vision is an attempt, I think, one of the ways of describing it, is an attempt to have a transition from the limits of what you call industrial capitalism. So could you share your thesis in the book? Okay, so let's get our terms straight. Industrial capitalism is not the same as market capitalism. Market capitalism Mm. is when we show up and uh, there are thirsty people and we sell them a glass of lemonade. We find a problem and we solve it. We give people a choice. They take it or they don't take it. And when we take something in the market, it's because it was worth more than we paid for it. And so market capitalism is innate in every community I've ever visited in the world because when we come together, we can create value. Industrial capitalism is, I've got some machines. I'm going to move them faster and faster and faster. I'm going to treat my people like machines. I'm going to lower my price and raise my productivity. I'm going to beat everybody else out of the market. And then I'm just going to keep churning it out in search of control. And industrial capitalism also worked. It gave us cheap cars and inexpensive airplanes. It pumped oil out of the ground. It built so many things of scale. But the problem is the incremental benefits keep going down. Side effects keep going up. The mess we're making keeps going up. The damage we're doing to our employees goes up. But we can't make it any cheaper than it's already being made. That, you know, a television today costs exactly as much as a television cost in 1963. We're never going to be able to make everything that we need, food or electronics or whatever it is, much cheaper than now. And yet we keep trying to cut those corners to race to the bottom. And so my argument is human beings don't want to race to the bottom. Human beings don't want sharp elbows and people being stripped of dignity. What human beings seek is significance, to do work that matters, to be missed if we're gone, to be connected, to be treated with dignity and respect, and to do it for others. And that flies in the face of forced labor, and it flies in the face of dumping stuff in the river just because we can. So it feels to me like now that we've got AI, now that everyone's got the means of production, a laptop, now that we've connected Mm. everybody, we have a chance to make a choice. And the choice is to race to the top instead. The choice is to be generative and connecting and create lots of value and maybe make good money doing so, but not with the mindset of Henry Ford with a different mindset. What's the mindset of Henry Ford? Well, so Henry Ford uh, met Frederick Taylor 110 years ago. Frederick Taylor had a stopwatch. Frederick Taylor figured out that if we treated people like machines, we get them go a little faster. And Henry Ford said, I am the boss. This is the org chart. Do what I say to the microsecond, measuring everything. He said, you can have any color car you want as long as it's black. Not because he liked black but because black paint dries four hours faster than any other color that he had. So he could get the assembly line to go faster and faster and faster. And that mindset, racing to the bottom, lowering the price, changed the world. But that mindset doesn't work when you're running a social network. And it doesn't work 
when you're trying to run any institution that needs to be around for the long haul. Uh, can I ask mm. a question, please? Please so, go right ahead. Yeah. So the song of significance, and I'm going to ask the question uh, from a very simple layman's perspective, just listening, trying to understand what's being said. So the song of significance, um, and, and we don't want to reduce people. What I'm hearing from you is to automatons within the machine but, and who are just cogs of efficiency, but we want to see them as beings with ends in and of themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So everyone, everyone wants, we have to recognize everyone's need for significance. When I'm hearing that, I'm wondering to myself how far this goes. When you're, when you're saying this, how far are you imagining it? To what limit does this extend? Because when I'm, when I'm thinking it through, I'm saying, well, you know, Joe's significance, Joe's sense of significance contrasts with Mary's sense of significance, and not all senses of significance can coexist together. So but maybe, maybe that's not, uh, it doesn't have to have a political application. Maybe we're, we're, we're what do, could, if you could just clarify where, how you sure. understand significance. Yeah, I love philosophy and philosophical arguments. That's not what I'm making in this book. Sure. What, I, what I'm describing in the book is this. Um, to be significant means to make a change happen, to do something that people would miss if it were gone, to show up and extend yourself a little bit beyond what you thought you could, to be treated with dignity and respect. And some organizations seek to strip people of that. And one of the things that you know, led me to write the book is a, a famous cantankerous billionaire firing disabled people online for fun because he could, right? That it's, there, there's a, there's a powerful mindset among industrialists that they're in charge and no one else matters. What I believe is that institutions, organizations, companies actually can create more money and more value by giving people, whether it's a frontline worker or who's a barista or whether it's somebody at 3M who's got an idea for a new product, treating those people like people and understanding real value is not created by doing something faster and cheaper than an AI can, because you can't win that race. Real value is not created by you know, trying to trick Google and going faster and faster at whatever hack you've got going on. So you need to, con you need to convince the industrialists. I don't, because the industrialists aren't open to being convinced. They're just going to be replaced. And we're seeing that all around the fringes, right? That the people who want uh, us to believe that uh, climate change isn't happening so they can keep pumping oil out of the ground, they can argue that all day long. They're never going to change their mind. But like cigarette executives, they will become less and less significant, important in the conversation. And we are waking up that whether it's uh, the Great Resignation or people choosing different paths with their with how they work with folks who have skills using them in ways they choose we are no longer doing what we were doing 50 years ago we are giving an enormous number of people the microphone the drum kit the tools they need to make a change happen and so we're never going to see another company with 200, 300, 400,000 employees in the US. That it doesn't make sense for that to happen again. Instead, what we're seeing is that groups of people connecting, in person or not, whether they work in the same company or not, 
or making changes happen. And that can happen in a widespread way that elevates us. Is this a philosophical thing? No, because the arguments about agency and side effects and capitalism, we can have those all day long. That's not my point. My point is within the system we live in right now, the opportunity is there for people to say, put me in. I would like to take responsibility. I don't need authority. I just want to make a change happen. That is happening more and more. And I think that's a good thing. Well, thank you for that uh, response and clarifying why what you're talking about is not a philosophical discussion per se, but uh, I guess one could say a um, pragmatic one in relation to where we are now in this phase of work, um, considering all the technological changes, considering everything and where we need to go next, kind of in sense of possibility. So there's a graphic in, in the book early on. It's a two by two matrix of low to high stakes work and low to high trust work. So if the work is, is high stakes, for example, but low trust, managers believe that it's necessary to monitor closely through surveillance. So let me give you an example of that for, 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 the, for our viewers at home. You do mm-hmm. not want to get on an airplane where the pilot is winging it. You do not want to get on an airplane where the pilot is just doing their best. You want to get on an airplane where everything is checked, boxed, where everybody is trained, where everyone is surveilled, where the rules are very clear because it's a low trust environment. You've never met the pilot. You never will meet the pilot. And that's why there are almost no plane crashes because we have systematized and industrialized the entire process of building and flying an airplane for good reason. So that is what it means to be low trust and high stakes. Okay, thank you. Now, how about high stakes, high trust? In this graphic, you say that work is like a jazz quartet. So we'd like some examples of that work and why do you equate it with the jazz quartet? And you got to know, because, you know, we've been in touch for a few years now, you know, my feeling for jazz, uh, my passionate devotion to it. And it's not just me, REA also, and the Omni American Future Project is culture based and part of the cultural inspiration for the Omni American Future Project is jazz. The heart of the inspiration is jazz, I would say. That's right. That's true. So it's the early 1960s. Herbie Hancock is just a kid. And he's got his big break. He's uh, playing with Miles Davis. Shortly after Kind of Blue came out. The stakes could not be higher for Miles Davis because he's touring the world as the most famous jazz musician in the world. He's up there playing. And uh, they're about to do So What? And uh, Herbie's got a solo. And the solo leads to a handoff to Miles. And after that handoff, Miles is going to play one of the solos from So What? And Herbie's playing. It's a big crowd in Germany. And he botches the last chord. He makes a mistake. And he thinks his whole life is over. He's going to get fired. He's going to be humiliated. Miles trusted him, and he clunked it. And in less than a second... Miles Davis picked up the trumpet and played a totally different solo, one that sounded like it was custom-made for that moment, because it was. And, of course, I wasn't there because I was only a couple years old. But that is what jazz is for. If you went to see 
Millie Vanilli playing a recording and lip syncing to it, it would be exactly like it was the night before and exactly the way it is the next night. But the reason that jazz creates magic is because what happened between Herbie and Miles that day. That's why we go, because it's a high stakes, high trust engagement. I don't want that to happen on an airplane. I want that to happen in a jazz club. And then how does that relate to work? I mean, believe me, I am co-founder of the Jazz Leadership Project. We have a business mm-hmm. with some very high-end clients that's focused on jazz principles and practices and how to equate it and bridge it to the workplace sure. I and got to so leadership many, and I teamwork. Got so many examples. I got examples all day long. All right. How about this? <laughs> uh, I went to see my doctor the other day and we had a conversation and he was not reading from a script. We were having a conversation. I went to a fancy restaurant the week before that. I have a weird diet. I'm intolerant of a lot of things. The kitchen figured out what to do and didn't say no substitutions, please. And um, when uh, Sully Sullenberger and his crew saved that plane from crashing and, and landed in the Hudson, right? In that moment, while they had checklists to work from, somebody took the lead and someone traded off fours with the other people. He said over and over again, he did not rescue that plane by himself. There were five of them who did it together because they had trained to do that, even if they'd never met, right? So we're talking about matters of life and death. We're talking about dinner for two. We're talking about everything in between that either we're showing up for this industrialized race to the bottom, or we are showing up for something that feels human. We need both in our life. But every time change occurs, change demands humanity to respond to it. On the other hand, if you're ordering mm. you know, the same thing you order every day for lunch, there's no change. They know what to do. Can you, am I hearing you correctly that uh, the magic that you're looking for at work life to translate jazz into a model for life is that in, in Albert Murray's terms, and Albert Murray is one of our intellectual heroes here, we improvise swinging through the changes, m- meaning, you know, the chord changes, which are the metaphor for the changes in our lives, which we have no choice but to face in the spirit of antagonistic cooperation, that all of our challenges and difficulties ultimately serve our purpose for making us what we aim to be. Yeah, like that. I agree. <laughs> that when, when, when change shows up, we have no choice. Now, the magic of jazz, which is different than Brahms, and which is different than you know, a standard rock pop hit, is jazz creates the change and responds to it in real time. The others view mm. it as a problem. And this was the wonder of the Grateful Dead, which I think could accurately be called the greatest American uh, rock group of all time. And they refused to play the same thing twice because that's why you came. They invented the changes and they responded to the changes, whereas other folks are doing the same show night after night after night. There are different ways to produce value. And what I'm arguing is if we live in a world where change is endemic, we better get better at trading fours. So would you make a jazz education a requirement in American schools? So let me tell you about jazz education for a minute. Um, I played the clarinet 
for uh, nine years, except mm. I didn't really play the clarinet. I yeah, just took lessons. Beautiful. I don't think I ever once played the clarinet. And this is the problem <laughs> with music education. I gave a three minute TED talk about this. You can look it up. Not for once did someone <laughs> say, uh, you're playing, you don't have one note, not one note that's worth listening to. We keep teaching you new songs and drilling you with more notes, but just play one note that we'd like to hear. And let's start with that. That the way we should teach kids the piano is not by teaching them scales. We should teach kids the piano by teaching them to listen and then to engage. And so most of the jazz education that I've encountered is about technique and playing the music as written long before we teach people to actually do what jazz is about. And there are plenty of jazz bands all the way back to the big band era where everyone's got their sheet music. And I think that that is music that sounds like jazz, but I don't want to call that jazz. But does jazz education have to be learning to play a musical instrument? Yes, exactly, exactly. So I used to start the workshops I did in my office with a drumming circle. I had 30 drums in a big circle and I had everyone sit there and I did not give them any instructions. And they figured out first how to be in sync with me. And then someone, without me telling them, figured out how to change the rhythm and other people would follow that. And it evolved over the course of just a couple of minutes. Playing the drums at the amateur level takes about 30 seconds to learn how to do. It's a thing like this. Um, with a djembe, I wasn't talented or skilled. We were, it was about being in sync. And if we go visit almost any public school anywhere in the world, we're not going to see that taught. What we're going to see taught is compliance and not resilience, not innovation, and definitely not teamwork. Those are the things that I would call jazz education, not here's a saxophone, show me your embouchure. Nice. Nice. Okay. So um, we're going to lean into something that we, we, we talk about here uh, on Straight Ahead as we strive to be straight ahead. It's the it's soulfulness. So my question to you is, if we read your book, Song of Significance, and we you know, follow your purpose and your intentions, and we develop the mindsets and prescriptions from this book, do you think that it can make work more soulful? You know, people ask about work-life balance. And I say, there's no such thing. There's just life. And we spend part of our life at work, but it's still life. And it was only fairly recently that we invented this idea that you're supposed to turn off life when you go to work. And it's only fairly recently that we invented the phrase, I'm just doing my job as an excuse for all the, the toxic side effects of what we may do when we're ostensibly doing our job. And for me, a goal would be that every human being has the ability to do something at work that gives them a feeling of significance. And that ranges from Lucy, the farmer I met in a fertile valley in Kenya, to the folks who make 3 or $4 a day harvesting cacao, to people who are making 3 or $4 a second in New York City. That the inequities are real, but it is possible, regardless of what we do for a living, to find humanity in what we do. I know that the pharmacist who works over there finds humanity in his work. And I know the barista who works over there manages to find six seconds with every customer 
so that they're not feeling like a robot that serves coffee. What we need to do is acknowledge that this isn't just normal or possible, but that it is essential. And at some point, we have to make the choice to do that, not to treat people like dispensable machines. Hmm. Okay. So we're going to pivot from um, the work part of our lives. You, you said this, this separation between work and life, work-life balance is artificial. But we're going to transition from work to our civic lives, mm-hmm. to our democracy for a little bit, because you have also written and thought quite deeply about that, I would say. So in your opinion, what would you say makes for a good, a good citizen in a, in a democracy, Seth? Wow, that's a great question. I think there probably isn't a universal answer. That it's not just by geography, it's by the moment. So in a, a crowded movie theater, if a fire breaks out, We are not looking for everyone to share their opinion. We are not looking for a discussion to happen. What we are looking for is a quick moment to decide who is in charge and then for everyone to follow those instructions and to help people who are less able than they are. That's not what should happen when the uh, town council is trying to decide whether they should ban leaf blowers or not. There, we're looking for an informed, eager conversation among citizens who are going to chime in in a way that gives them a feeling of being bought into the process. Or if we stay away from crowds, we're also looking for someone who is going to hold the door open for somebody else because the door is already open and they could use a hand. So I think to be a good citizen is a complicated question, but maybe if I was going to make it short, it's what would you do if your mother was watching? Wow, that ties into, ooh, that's, that's a, wow. That ties into morality, ethics. That ties into a lot. Ancestral imperative. Wow. Hmm. Okay. So, but to continue along this citizenship line, this civic line, how do you think we can have Americans exemplify being good citizens where their action, their interactions with others um, will make, you know, the ancestors proud, will make mom and daddy proud, yeah. as opposed to just being good consumers. Yeah. We are in a, str- the, the industrial capitalism has led to a consumer society and consumerism. Yeah. So how would you say we can you know, deal oh, with that? Oh, this is so juicy. Okay. So let's start with this. I don't believe the people who were lucky enough to uh, have the power to build the social media systems of our present day were good citizens when they uh, put attention clicks above good behavior. I think that uh, a dozen of them made some very bad mistakes in the last 20 years, creating the conditions for people to get rewarded for doing things that don't help any of us. There was a piece in the Times today about the meme of throwing cheese and cracking eggs on your baby's head to get clicks on internet. No, that's not okay. Clicks are not what we should be chasing. And so we all have witnessed 1% of the population acting really poorly, and now it's starting to feel more normal. In fact, 
when we are in our tinier communities, when we are in our neighborhoods, people don't act like that. When we are with each other, we act in ways that we are proud of. It's only in the large that it seems okay to be a troll or a clown. And then when we add the consumer part, people who call themselves marketers for 70 years have been pushing folks for an ostentatious display of status by what they can buy and dispose of at the expense of our communities and our planet. And it is possible to have resilient capitalism, possible to have a consumer society where being a consumer isn't the point. Being a consumer is simply a side effect of people working together. But again, we have this problem. And the problem is no one's in charge. And my hope is that the arc is long and it does bend toward justice. And we're going to figure out that we don't want to watch trolls anymore. And we don't want to reward people just because they made a lot of money. And that's what culture is. People like us do things like this. We have to decide what the things like this are. We have to decide what it means to be admired. Um, I think the world is an extraordinary place right now. It's so much safer than it was 50 or 100 years ago. But there's also way more injustice and way more remedi- re- easily remediated injustice than ever. And so it's complicated. Do, do you think we should be aiming to continually make a safer and safer world? I would love to hear why you think we wouldn't want to do that. Because um, those qualities of character, um, the soul, uh, doesn't grow through safety. Well, there's different kinds of safety. I'm talking about the fact that very few people are dying from polio. I'm talking about the fact that there are very few civil wars going on. I'm talking about the fact that uh, getting in a car or getting in an airplane used to be risking your life. That we created an industrial world that people don't realize how much ordinary pain and suffering it alleviated. That's for sure true. But it came at a cost. And your point is right, right? The question is, what would get us to grow as humans and to grow as citizens? I don't think it's confronting actual mortality. I think it might be being in a system where we're not insulating our feelings, where we're not being rewarded for simply doing our job and then buying more crap. I think if we could be in a system, you know, if you, my friend who's in the, in the volunteer orchestra in our county, the people in that volunteer orchestra, all of them are doing a job that some people get paid for somewhere else. That's the best part of their day, best part of their month. Because when you're in the orchestra with other people who want to be in the orchestra, your soul grows. And we are isolating ourselves and doing Netflix and chill instead of showing up in community and having the kind of interactions that could lead us to growth. That doesn't mean we have to die from polio. It means we have to create emotional connection again. I hear yourself, but let me, let me jump in here. Let me push back yeah, a little bit. This is great. Because it's great that there's, there's less overall, you know, less violence, less though, of course, there's a lot of suffering that remains. I mean, we all know that. There's a lot of injustice that remains, as you said. But you also said that we don't have to face death, but, and, I, and this is philosophical, and sometimes you just can't avoid philosophy. Facing our mortality sometimes is not in terms of 
like being yourself in a life threatening situation, though I did hear you talk about the origins of this book, Seth, and you almost drowning that caused you in part to write this book. So you had to face death. So that very experience goes against what you said in terms of not facing death. I think facing our mortality, you know, uh, is is ultimately necessary for our maturity and the maturity of our souls. So what would you say to that, sir? There might be a parallel here that if we're talking economically, you can only become so efficient until such point as efficiency becomes this Frankenstein, right? Likewise, you know, we, we can, our, our quest for security, you know, only can go so far. We're going to have to accept the fact that life is dangerous, that life is full of, full of risk, and we're going to have to embrace that. Okay. I think that the first thing I'd say from a personal point of view is I'm not willing to, to drown again to write another book. I'm not, signing, I'm not signing up for that. Um, we tell ourselves stories all the time. And the feeling of risk is very different than actual risk. That if you talk to someone who's taken refuge as a Buddhist, it feels really risky to be silent for 10 days. People throw up, they hallucinate. It feels like you're confronting a mortality. But as far as I know, no one's ever passed away as part of a 10-day meditation retreat. That when you talk to someone who has just come off the stage at Jazz Forum Arts and had a great set, they felt alive, but they weren't likely to die. That what gets rich people to go to work tomorrow, even though they're rich, is the thrill of this time it might not work. These are feelings of mortality without actual mortality. So when, when I see a cholera epidemic break out in Haiti, not for one minute do I think that that's a good thing. No. Not for one minute do I say, oh, great, the, the kids in Haiti are going to get to experience no, no. something that's growth. No. Well, let's get rid of cholera once and for all. I'm in favor of that. Yes. But also, as Ari is pointing out, more efficiency, there's no sigmas left. There's no more zeros to, get, to take out of the system. So when, when AI shows up and someone says, oh, great, I don't have to work as hard because I can just get the computer to write all day for me. Yeah, but your day is gone. You just wrecked your day. How are you going to put that tool to work for you as opposed to you working for that tool? That when I watch somebody who has been indoctrinated by the school system saying, just show me the steps, show me how to get an A, I'm looking at a dead person. I don't want that to spread. I'm looking for people to be alive and we can do that without it actually involving death. I see what you're saying. Yes, hundred percent. Okay. Yeah, that you know, that's choose life, and and you know, the, there's a, a million and one small ways every day in which we can infuse more life into everything that we do. I'm hearing you differently now, Seth. I, at the beginning, I understood from Greg that you're a man of the people, and I understood more deeply from the show that you're a man of the people. But what, what I think what I'm hearing, the music behind your words is you want, you want to introduce a lot of what you're saying. Change is synonymous with an intensification of life. Yeah, I mean, the book before the Carbon Almanac was the practice. And what yeah. I argue in the practice is that no such thing as writer's block and talent is an illusion. That what we're looking for is skill. And the way we get skill is by juggling. And the way we learn to juggle is not by worrying about the catching all the time. 
but by getting good at throwing. And if you get good at throwing, the catches take care of themselves. And yet, even though I've taught thousands of people to juggle, a whole bunch of people are afraid to even throw once because it might fall. And because the world we're living in is so safe, A, that's pushed us to never drop a ball. But what I'm saying is it's so safe. Why not? Drop some balls. No one's going to die. <laughs> and, and in your other book that I have here. Old school. The Icarus. Yeah, yeah. Icarus Deception, How High Will You Fly? Uh, you were saying that, you know, safety, security. Now, what was the, what was the thesis of, of that book? Because I think this would be good for Arye to hear. Right. Well, so, again, I got to talk about the indoctrination. You know, we indoctrinated mm. people into a caste system, into racism, into uh, to anti-Semitism. All of it, right? No one's born that way. And mm. one of the things that paid for school is the fact that factory workers were freaking out that they wouldn't have enough compliant factory workers. And the best way to get compliant factory workers is to sell them on this sort of mythological and not actually actualized American dream, which is that you will get one job at the placement office and you will do that job all the time until the boss that's, says you That's a dystopia. That's a nightmare. But that's what they sold everybody on because that's what school is, right? School is you're in first grade. What happens after that? Second grade. And what happens in second grade? Will this be on the test, right? What's the least amount of work I can do to get a grade good enough to show my parents so that I can then go off my shift. And that's what we built school to do. We process kids in bunches. And then if someone's defective, we put them back and reprocess them. So we invented this system. And what I talk about in the book is that we changed, we actually changed the myth of Icarus, that we tell kids the story that Icarus, uh, his dad gave him the wings and they put him on with wax. And he said, let's get out of here, but don't fly too high. Because if you fly too high, the sun will melt the wax and you'll die. And he disobeyed his father and he died. So what is that about? It's about hubris. It's about obeying authority. What's missing from the story since 1745 when they changed it was the second half of the story, where his father also said, don't fly too low, my son, because if you fly too low, the water and the mist will weigh down your feathers and you will die. We took that out because we want people to fly low and just buy a lot of stuff. Mm. All right, break it down into the mythological. Yeah, now let's stay with citizenship a little bit here. Okay, so do you see a connection? And, and I know I'm throwing softballs at you. You know, that's what we do here. We throw softballs. Uh, <laughs> do you see a connection between free enterprise, engaged citizenship, and jazz? I've never seen... I haven't seen as much jazz as you, but I've seen a lot. I've never seen jazz musicians working against each other, that they mm. are playing an infinite game, that the goal of jazz mm. is not to win. The goal of jazz is to keep playing. And not mm. only do jazz musicians in the quartet play with each other, they support the next quartet or trio that's going to be on the stage. They don't worry about market share. They worry about how big can they make the whole pie. And mm. citizenship, which had overlaid on top of it this false idea of patriotism as how do we beat the other country is mm. a weird construct because 
you know, for for the Yankees to win, the Mets have to lose or whatever baseball analogy you want. That's mm-hmm. an odd form of citizenship. What if there's a form of citizenship that says it's if there's a hole in the wall, I should plug it because it's going to make the house cold for everybody, right? That mm. what we have as citizens is a chance to do this generative work that's additive that might not help everyone the same amount all the time, but over time leads us toward a better place. And what I think has happened, partly thanks to divisions in the media, partly thanks to campaign finance, is it's shifted to a zero-sum game, which is my mm. team wins when your team loses. And that's a game that I hope we can walk away from because we ought to be able to, with all the resources we have and all the mess we've made, we ought to be able to make a game where most people win most of the time. Yeah, infinite game, James Cars. Yeah, that's a, a love that, that, that work and that's what you're riffing on in part. But what about the free enterprise system? I mean, um, in your work, and I've you know written this, you know, cause we've been in touch directly for the last couple of years and and I wrote a blog where you you were talking about the distinction between the free enterprise system and like crony capitalism. Yeah. So riff on yeah riff on the free enterprise system a little bit. So what people who are in favor of free markets forget is the free part, and what we need is for people to be able to be able to make a choice. If you get locked into a phone contract, the company you're working with has much less incentive to do what they said they were going to do because you're locked into it. When Google builds a monopoly, and they clearly have on purpose, we all suffer. It costs us more when we buy any product. It changes the way we interact with the internet. That's not a free market. A free market, which is where we started this rant a little while ago, is when someone offers to solve your problem, charging you less than you think it's worth for it to be solved. And if we can do that while keeping track of monopoly and side effects, the outputs that cost other people money, we have a chance to build something generative and resilient. So in that respect, it has a little to do with jazz in that what jazz is saying is, I might be the person whose name is on the bandstand, but when you are playing the clarinet, you have control right now and you're going to set up the next person in the, in the chain. That's different than the idea that one multi-billionaire controls the lives of hundreds of thousands or millions of people with power, because power tends to be brittle. And what we need are algorithms, what we need are basic federated concepts where working together works better than not. Yeah, well, you laid that out. In the Jazz Leadership Project, we use that exact kind of analogy where we say, you know, yes, we literally say, you could have a band leader's name on the marquee. So they are the, you know, the, the leader of the band in that sense. But on the band stand, when each person gets a chance to solo, to put, as Albert Murray would say, to put their signature on the epidermis of actuality, then they are the leader in that moment, moment and others are supporting them. And it's a beautiful um, kind of dynamic going on um, that we like to, not only for organizations, but we like to 
extrapolate from that and say, we need to look at that type of dynamic of collective intelligence, of cultural intelligence, and apply that to the way we interact with each other as citizens. So that's some of the connections. So you really, you really hit on it for me there. Are you? No, I'm just amazed that Seth has never heard a, a bad jazz band live. I'm still going back to that. No, no, no. I've heard, oh, so many bad jazz bands. So many. What I said is, I've never heard one where the people in it were fighting with each other. Right? Mm, they may not okay. hear each other. They may not, but they weren't saying, I can win this jazz concert. Right? But the bad jazz that I've heard is jazz. Under, I, why anyone is a jazz musician for a living, I don't know. They're making $12 a day. But when mm. someone's phoning it in, you can tell because they're yeah. not taking any of the risks that we came to hear. They're not engaging with uh, the, the kinds of magic that are possible when human beings come together. But I got to go back one more time to this indoctrination thing. So I, for 43 summers, I've been going up to Canada. I teach canoeing. There's a summer camp up there I used to run. And some kids, when you give them the opportunity to lead, say, about time, and they do. And some kids, even when they're nine years old, say, how do I do this without making a mistake? And that's heartbreaking. And that is the work we need to do as teachers and as leaders to help that nine-year-old not give up and let them lead, even in a tiny way, so tomorrow they could lead a little bit more. So I know that you happen to have a particular love for the playing of Christian McBride. What, talk about Christian a little bit. I wrote a blog post about seeing Christian at the Blue Note. And the Blue Note is not a very big place. And there was a woman six feet in front of him. And she was clearly a date. I don't know who her date was, but she was not there because she wanted to be there. And she, you know, she didn't applaud at the solo. She wasn't leaning in. She wasn't listening. She, and I was like, I was honoring Christian by saying he understood who was there for him and he was playing for them. One of my failings when I used to go on stage a lot is if I saw someone like that in the audience, I, would, I just couldn't stop looking at them. Like, what are you doing? How do I try harder? Christian's like, I'm here for this. Uh, and I talked to him later. I did an interview with him and he confessed he had no recollection of her even being in the room, <laughs> which is great, right? But what Christian has done, what so many of the other great bass players who have been on hundreds of albums have done, is sometimes their name's on the door and sometimes it's not. But you can tell when they're on the record and you can tell when they're in the group because they understand that while the bass might not be the lead instrument, we need it. You can tell when it's not there. And there isn't one right answer for how you play the bass. and. I learned so much from my conversation with Christian and from listening to his work, whether it's live at Tonic or the, the, the more recent stuff. What we don't do is replace the tape recorder. We have tape recorders now. We don't have a music shortage. You can listen to music for the rest of eternity and never hear the same thing twice. That's not what we need anymore. Just like when you go to a clothing store, you're not naked. Every single person who goes to a clothing store already is wearing clothes. We go to the clothing store because of the story we get to tell ourselves about what it was to buy a piece of clothing. We listen to live jazz for the story we tell ourselves about the spaces in between and about possibility. And what I'm arguing is more and more and more and more jobs 
are like that, where people who have a choice show up. And if you're going to bother to do the thing, we should do it to be a human. Well, my first of the final two questions is you make a distinction in your work between leadership and management. And, and I'd like you to share a, what you mean by that and why that's important. You know, I was talking to someone in France this morning and he said management was a French word and they don't have a word for leadership, which I found hard to believe. What with Joan of Arc and everything. Managers use power and authority to get something done that was done yesterday. Do it again, a little faster, a little cheaper. We need managers. That's how fast food restaurants work. No one would show up for their shift. It wasn't a manager. Power and authority with instructions. Leadership is totally unrelated. Many managers aren't leaders. Many leaders aren't managers. Leaders are doing something voluntary. They're making a change happen that might not work. Over there. I'm going over there. Who wants to come? So to lead requires enrollment. Because if someone's following you because they have to, then you're a manager. If they're following you because they want to, because they believe in the goal, because they want to go to that place, you are leading. And the pendulum goes both ways, but it is clearly swinging right now in the direction of leadership. We need more leaders. But not, not everyone can be a leader. Anyone can choose to be a leader. You're not going to have 350 million leaders in the United States. Okay. You're saying two different things. The first one is, can everyone be a leader at the same time? And the answer is, as a practical matter, no. But everyone can't play a solo at the same time. That doesn't mean we can't trade fours. Every person I have met as I've studied leadership has led once in their life, has done one thing one time to explore a frontier somewhere. So if you can do it once, you're capable of doing it again. So what we have to figure out is how do we bring the right soloist to the fore? And when it's our turn to lead, not blink but to actually do it in a way that we're proud of. That, that is a very broad definition of leadership. I get to write. I'm the author. I can say anything I want. Absolutely. As a man of the people, I understand you, you, you give that you, you are empowering people to see their lives in terms of leadership. I hear, Greg. I would have to agree with Seth. Uh, you know, from the you know, civic perspective of jazz, no, we all don't take a solo at the same time, but what did I say? In that moment where you're taking your solo, and you're being supported by the band members and you're clicking with the audience. You're, you're being a leader. You're expressing your voice, your, your sound, your, you're making your state. You you're know, taking, so you're, you're there, taking there your risk moments. too. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. You're taking a risk. That's not about being safe and secure. You're putting yourself out there and you're going to make some mistakes like Herbie made with Miles, by the way, we use that same, that same story in, in Jazz Leadership Project too. So my, my, my final uh, question, Seth, is when you hear the term omni-American, what does that evoke? You know, a friend of mine is a, a first people's educator in Northern Ontario. And I've met so many people through the years where the phrase American doesn't always carry the connotations we would like it to carry. And, mm. you know, colonialism came as the result of a whole bunch of factors. And there's things about it that we can be proud of. And there's a lot about it not to be. And words matter. So it feels to me like what you're probably getting at is this. 
there's an iconic, idealized, possible American, somebody who can see how to weave things together where there wasn't something there before. And there's this idea of a persistent and stable democracy that has very little in the way of corruption and a lot in the way of shared voices and a, a relentless move toward better, toward fairer, toward uh, inclusion. And so for me, that is what the American dream is about. And I don't think it has to be associated with a country. Uh, I think that we could imagine that there are places on this planet and even other ones where that is one of the arcs of how organisms can interact with each other. I learned a lot about the bees in writing this book. That's why there's a bee on the cover. And the best part of bee communities feels American to me. It's about selflessness. It's about responsibility. It's about clarity. It's about telling each other the truth. It's about uh, resilience. And so those are the things I would like to have that word mean, but I am not fooling myself into thinking that there are plenty of people who have not received that from words like that. Well, well thank you very much, Seth. Arya, do you have any final questions? Or Nothing. Thank you very much, Seth. It was a pleasure having you uh, on the show. And I'm sure that I'm going to be hearing from Greg Thomas for a long time now <laughs> about the many wise <laughs> things you said during this conversation. Well, thank you both. You guys are terrific. Thank you so much. Seth. It, was a, it was a pleasure. So meeting. Appreciate thank you very much. You joining us. Thanks. Go make a ruckus, oh. everybody. We'll see you. All right. And keep swinging. Thank you for listening to Straight Ahead, the Omni-American podcast. Subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to the podcast and fight for a future where the many can join as one against bigotry. Bigotry.